right outside the entrance of a collapsed mine. They were the family members of the 33 Chilean miners trapped below the surface. Maybe you remember hearing about this in the news. Uh, while these 33 miners were underground, a huge chunk of the mountain broke off and landed right on the top of this mine, collapsing and blocking the entrance. This piece of rock was 550 feet tall and weighed 770,000 tons, twice the weight of the Empire State Building. So safe to say these miners were trapped down below the Earth's surface. When the mountain collapsed on top of them, they all fled to what they called the refuge room, a classroom-sized safe room that was steel-enforced, and it was, it was uh, stocked with provisions. Now, the refuge room held provisions that were only meant to last two days. 18 cans of tuna, one can of salmon, one can of peaches, one can of peas, 24 liters of condensed milk, and 93 small packages of cookies. The men were forced to drink the dirty water that kept their machinery cool. They rationed their food equally. Each day at noon, every man was given a spoonful of tuna or salmon and two cookies. And that was to last them until noon the next day. This went on day after day until almost all of the food ran out. At one point, they found a slice of peach that they had lost, and they meticulously divided it into 33 slivers, about the, the width of your fingernail, and they shared it. Now, this went on for 17 days, 17 days of not knowing if they would ever be rescued, and I'm sure with each passing hour, hope grew dimmer. Some men started to hallucinate. Some men started to fight with each other. Uh, others had the exact opposite reaction and just went off to a secluded corner to be by themselves. But just when things were the darkest, on day 17, hope. Hope came in the form of the sound of a drill. At first, some men thought they were hallucinating, but as more men heard it, they they ran over to the spot in the wall where they were hearing the sound of this drill, and they used their wrenches to bang on the wall, trying to identify where they were, and soon enough, a drill had bore a hole through this wall, about the size of a grapefruit, and these men saw something that they hadn't seen in a very long time. Light. Now, these men knew that they were rescued, and so they laughed and cheered uh, they passed around a jug full of dirty water and pretended it like it was champagne. Uh, it would actually be another 52 days before the miners could actually be extracted. But during this time, uh, the people above, the rescuers, were able to pass down fresh food, water, and a phone line for them. And in the end, all 33 made it out alive. Uh, the pictures from that day are pretty incredible. Uh, you see these miners uh, who have to wear these special sunglasses because they hadn't seen light in so long, just embracing their family and friends, uh, overjoyed uh, with Camp Esperanza, uh, that their family had waited for them, and this, this hope was finally fulfilled. But press rewind. Imagine day 17, being trapped in total 
darkness. And not knowing if you would ever be rescued. And then imagine day 18. Still in total darkness, but now with a grapefruit-sized hole in the wall. Not much has changed. But everything's changed. What's changed? Hope. These men now had hope. Today we live in darkness. Our world is changing and it's changing fast. People live in the darkness. Uh, They're lost in their sin. They love their sin. They embrace their sin. But despite all of this darkness that we live in, there is hope. And our hope for this lost and dying world is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so tonight as we continue talking about evangelism, I want to focus on the gospel itself. What exactly is the gospel? We're going to look at the theology of the gospel And I want to look at a gospel-centered, gospel-saturated passage because this is a reminder of the hope that we have as Christians. And this is a reminder of the message that we proclaim. Uh, This is the good news. Uh, This is a message of salvation for those in darkness. So when you actually tell people how they can be saved, this is what you're saying. This is the message that we have. And, and another reason I want to look at this text of Scripture today is to remind all of us just how good the good news is, just how great the gospel is. Because if you're freshly amazed by the gospel, if you are freshly rejoicing in your own salvation and what the gospel has meant in your life, well, then evangelism is going to come very naturally. Uh, It's going to overflow out of your heart. So, you can turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, today we're going to cover verses 6 to 8. And in these three verses, we're going to get a front row seat to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 6 to 8. The Apostle Paul writes, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In this section of Scripture, the Apostle Paul answers the question, what's so great about the gospel? The gospel literally means good news, and we're going to see why the gospel is the greatest news you have ever heard and the greatest news you could ever share with someone else. What's so great? About the gospel, the Apostle Paul answers that question three different ways. We're going to look at three answers to the question, what's so great about the gospel? 
first of all, it satisfies the most desperate need. It satisfies the most desperate need. That's found in the first part of verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The gospel satisfies your most desperate need. Your most desperate need is not a new job, a promotion, an increase to your salary. It's not popularity. It's not being well-liked by others. It's not getting that guy or that girl to like you. It's not a house. It's not friends. It's not respect. And it's not the iPhone 10. Your greatest need, my greatest need, and the greatest need of all the world is to be forgiven of our sins. That is the most desperate need of every human being. Now, the first thing we notice in this passage is that we're called weak. What does that mean? Well, it means that we are unable to understand spiritual things. 1 Corinthians 2.14. We're unable to see the kingdom of God or enter into it. John 3, 3 to 5. We're unable to seek after God. Romans 3, 11. The Bible speaks loud and clear. Everyone has sinned and God will not leave the guilty unpunished. And what's worse, you can't do anything about it. You are too weak, as verse 6 says. Now, when I was a little kid, about four or five years old, like one of those kids running around in the back, uh, my family took a vacation to Canada, and as a part of this vacation, we went to this huge mall that had inside the mall an indoor water park. And at the time, uh, I couldn't swim, and so I was not allowed to go into the pools, and I wasn't allowed to go down the water slides. My sister, who was five years older than me, she could swim, and she was allowed to go in the pools and the water slides, and I thought that was kind of lame that I wasn't able to do that. I had to stay with my mom the whole time. So I came up with a little plan to, to escape my mom, and I went off on my own. And I, what really caught my eye was, was the wave pool. If you don't know what that is, it's just what it sounds like. It's a big pool of water with a big machine on one side uh, that moves up and down to generate artificial waves. And so I, I step into this pool just as a little kid, super excited that I disobeyed my parents and I was off on my own, rebel without a cause. I went in just to just dip my toe in the water and I quickly ran out, super excited that I had gone into the water. And then I thought to myself, you know, I could do better than that. And so this time I, I go in a little deeper. This time the water's up to my knees. And then I run away, super scared and super excited. Ah, I went even further. And pretty soon I'm playing this game with myself, right? Uh, how far can I go in? I go in until the water's at my waist level, then at my chest level, then at my neck, then at my chin. And pretty soon I go in so deep that I have to, have to tippy-toe just to keep my head above water. And that's when I got myself into trouble. Uh, this huge wave knocks me off my feet, and I can't feel 
the bottom anymore. For some reason, I feel like I'm getting sucked closer to this big machine creating the waves, and the, it's bringing me closer and closer. I remember the, the, the loud noise of the machine getting louder and louder. I'm trying my best to swim. I'm trying to imitate what I saw my sister do, flail my arms about, kick my legs. Nothing is working. I'm just sinking deeper and deeper, getting further and further from the shore. I try to breathe some air, but I just drink in gulps of water, filling my stomach with water, and I finally think to myself, okay, this is it. been a good life. Four whole years on this earth, and this is how it ends. Well, I don't know how long this goes on. It seems like an eternity. But finally, a lifeguard jumps in, saves me, and pulls me back to the shore. Since then, I've learned how to swim, Uh, not because it's fun or anything, but out of necessity. Never want that to happen again. Uh, Because I've never forgotten that feeling of literally feeling like I was drowning. Uh, Never forgot that feeling of, of helplessness, knowing that there was nothing I could do to save myself. Well, it's the same for us in a spiritual sense. We are weak, helpless to save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to pedal our way back to God, no matter how hard we try. We can't meet this desperate need on our own. Ephesians 2 says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Guys, it doesn't get more weak than being dead. And I don't mean to be irreverent or anything, but when's the last time you went to a funeral, knocked on the casket and say, hey, Want to come out and play some football? Dead people are completely incapable of doing anything. And it's the same for us in a spiritual sense. We're completely incapable of coming to God on our own. We can't even take a baby step toward God. Because of our sin, we are completely helpless, completely weak, We need to be saved. We need a Savior. We need Jesus to pay the price for our sins. We need him to make a sacrifice. And that leads us to the second answer to the question, what's so great about the gospel? Secondly, it requires the most costly sacrifice. Second part of verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. If you hang out in Christian circles for any amount of time, and I know that most of you have been here for over a year, you you hear this phrase repeated over and over again, and rightly so because it really does encapsulate what Christianity is all about. You hear the phrase, Christ died for you. You hear that over and over again. I grew up in a Christian school uh, and grew up in church. And as a kid, I, I think I understood what that meant. I had some idea of what it meant, but it really never came alive to me. I never fully understand that phrase that we say all, that t- all the time until I realized that that little word for 
is talking about substitution. Jesus died instead of you. Jesus died on your behalf. Jesus died in your place. He died the death that you deserved. And it says that he died for us while we were ungodly. Now that word ungodly means to be anti-God, to be in opposition to God. We're all naturally born with a stiff arm in God's face. We naturally fight against God's lordship. We naturally want to live our own lives and live it in our, our own way rather than submitting to God. Now, none of us is born naturally loving God or wanting to do what is right. Instead, we're naturally born wanting to do what makes us happy, and we're okay breaking God's laws as long as we get what we want. Our default is self-centeredness and selfishness. Now, that's why we need a Savior to be our substitute, who will stand in our place and take the punishment for our sins, who will absorb the punishment that we rightly deserve. Now, I remember being in the third grade at my Christian school and learning a, an important lesson one day in class. In the third grade, we had this one kid who was just that kid. You know, the, the bad kid that the teacher didn't like and nobody else liked either. His name was Robert. And Robert was always bugging the other kids, uh, talking incessantly, even when the other kids didn't want to talk to him. Uh, he was always giving the teacher a hard time. Uh, he was always doing weird and disgusting things, and so everyone wanted to avoid Robert. Uh, he was such a problem that at one point, the teacher, her name was Mrs. Sue, and I don't know what her first name is to this day, but Mrs. Sue uh, put Robert by himself on one side of the classroom at his desk and put everyone else on the other half of the classroom, uh, just so that he wouldn't bother the other kids. So this is the kind of guy, Robert is. Well, one day uh, during class, Mrs. Sue gets up to the front and says, hey, um, has anybody seen my set of markers? I had a brand new set of markers and they're on my desk and now they're gone. Did anyone take them by accident? And no one says anything. And you can see that Mrs. Sue starts to get a little frustrated and thinks, okay, well, you know, or she says, oh, if you see them, just let me know, okay? Well, the day goes by, and toward the end, uh, pretty much right before the bell's about to ring, uh, Mrs. Sue, as she's teaching and wrapping up her lesson, says, hey, what, what, what's that? What's that in the back? And she, she walks down the aisle, and out of someone's backpack is sticking the markers. And all of us little third graders are like, oh, the markers. Whose backpack is it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of course. Of course. Robert knew it. Mrs. Sue says, well, you know, Robert, I'm going to have to punish you for this, and so uh, you're going to have to stay 
after class. And Robert immediately begins to, to plead with her. Oh, oh please, don't, don't make me stay after class. I, I really, really don't want to stay after class. i got to get home. And Mrs. Hughes says, no, you, you broke the rules. You, you stole the markers, and so you, you have to stay after class. And Robert gets, gets crazy. He's like, no, no, please, I, I can't stay. My, my dad's waiting for me. I, I just can't stay. Please don't make me stay after class. And Mrs. Hughes says, okay, you don't have to stay after class on one condition. If someone else stays after class in your place, would anyone like to stay after class instead of Robert? Silence. And I remember sitting there in my, my chair, just, you know, punk little third grader, Mrs. C. Mrs. C, please. There's no way. There's no way that I'm going to take the fall for something that I didn't do, and I'm certainly not going to do it for Robert. And so you're, you're out of luck. Well, as you can imagine, no one volunteers, and at that point, Mrs. Sue reveals that the whole thing was set up, that Robert had not actually stolen the markers, but before class, they had actually planned this whole thing out so that she could teach us a lesson in the gospel, and in particular, a lesson about substitution. I guess you can do that kind of thing at a Christian school. And I've never forgotten that lesson because I've never forgotten that feeling of just sitting in my chair, arms crossed, thinking there's just no way that I would take the punishment for something I didn't do, and certainly I'm not going to do it for this guy that I don't like. Well, as crazy as that sounds, that's exactly what Jesus did for us. He died for the ungodly. And the punishment that he took for ungodly sinners was, was not a small one. The price to pay was high. It was his own life. It was the cross. And he did that for us. God must punish sin, and the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ reminds us what a costly sacrifice was given for us, because our sins could not be swept under the rug, our sins could not be thrown out the window, our sins needed to be paid for, and they had to be paid for by being nailed to the cross. Jesus gave it all. He gave it all for us in the greatest act of love in history. And that's, that brings us to our third point, our third answer to the question, what's so great about the gospel? It surpasses the best human love. It surpasses the best human love. Now we're talking about the greatest act of love in history. Verses 7 
to 8. Let's read verse 7 for now. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Verse 7 describes the pinnacle, the apex, the very best human love has to offer, dying in the place of another person. But this verse is also realistic in stating that you wouldn't just die for anyone, you would only die for a righteous person or a good person. It starts off, verse 7, by saying that one would scarcely die for a righteous person. You would scarcely, hardly, maybe die for a righteous person. So, That's the best human love has to offer, a dying for a good person, a kind, generous, upright person. And even then, you wouldn't exactly be lining up to do so. You would hardly do it. In the history of our country, there have been 20 attempted assassinations on presidents and Uh, You know the president has his Secret Service agents. Uh, They're hired to protect the president and throw their bodies in the line of fire to take a bullet for the president if need be. Well, this has only happened four times in the history of the United States. Secret Service agent Tim McCarthy threw his body in the line of fire to protect President Ronald Reagan in 1981. And in 1950... Three different officers took bullets that were aimed at President Harry S. Truman. These four men took bullets for a good person, uh, a good man who they knew would do a lot of good in the world. Would you do the same? Now imagine this. Imagine the gun is pointed at your best friend. Maybe they're here today. Would you step in front of that gun and take the bullet for your best friend? Well, I have no doubt that some of you would uh, because you're that kind of person. But imagine this. Now the gun is pointed at a complete stranger. Would you take the bullet then? Uh, okay, um, you know, sorry, stranger man. I had to think about it for my best friend, so I, I think you're out of luck. Now imagine one more scenario. Imagine the gun is now pointed at your worst enemy. The one who has hurt you the most in this life. Would you take the bullet then? As crazy as that sounds, that is what Jesus Christ did for us. That's why his love surpasses the best human love has to offer. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us when we were sinners, not when we were his friends, not when 
we were even strangers to him, but when we had pushed him away and hurt him and broken his laws and when we were his enemies, when we had sinned against him personally, that's when Jesus died for us. I look at that word shows. God provides evidence for He demonstrates his love. He proves that he loves you. God said he loves you, and he proved it by nailing his son to a cross. Uh, The scourging and whipping that he endured, uh, the nails that were driven into his wrists and his ankles, uh, the crown of thorns that was thrust upon his head, Uh, the mocking and ridicule that he didn't deserve but received, the the spitting upon his face, the tearing out of his beard, uh, the punching in the face that he received was all for you while you were still sinners, Uh, while you were rebellious against him And that act screams, demonstrates, shows that he loves you. And all of what we've seen in verses 7 and 8 point to one powerful and amazing truth. That this love that surpasses the best human love is a love that we did not deserve. It surpasses the best human love in that it is 100% completely undeserved. So, what does this mean for our evangelism? It means that no one is beyond the reach of God's love. No one is beyond the reach of God's love in Jesus Christ. This passage applies to every non-Christian you know, every non-Christian you've ever prayed for, every non-Christian that you've thought about sharing the gospel with. God demonstrates his own love for everyone. You see, when you sit down to share the gospel with someone, you talk about their sin, and you can tell them that even though you don't know all the the wrong things that they've done, God has shown his love for them in putting his son on a cross. And even though they've done some things that they're not proud of, and even though they've done some things that they're ashamed of and they would want no one to find out, that, that if people found out about Uh, They would just crawl under a rock and die. But even if they've done things like that, God still loves them. Because some non-Christians in our lives think that because they've done these things, God could never love them. And I think that's the saddest thing to, to think that because it's a lie and not what God's Word says. The truth is no one can be beyond God's love because no one deserved it in the first place. You get that? 
No one can be beyond God's love because no one deserved it in the first place. We're all equally undeserving of God's love, yet he gives it to us in the cross of Jesus nonetheless. So, God's love reaches everyone. Now, you don't see any exception clauses here. God shows his own love for us, except the really bad people, except the people who have done this and this sin, God shows his love for us, no exceptions. While we were yet sinners, all sinners, Christ died for us. And some of these non-Christians that you may be speaking to may feel like Christianity is just not for them. Uh, That Christianity is just for those prim and proper and clean-cut Christians that have cleaned up their act, but the joy is that you can sit down with them and say, hey, Christianity is not for those who have cleaned up their act. Uh, Christianity is for sinners who have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. Sinners of all kinds and sinners of all magnitudes. And, and that's your, the, the privilege that you have to tell them that Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is available to all. It breaks through any racial lines. It's for Jews and Gentiles. The gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for adulterers like the woman at the well for tax collectors like Zacchaeus, Pharisees like Nicodemus, Gentiles like the wise men, the religiously confused like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, doubters like Thomas, desperate criminals like the thief on the cross, the blind, the sick, the lame, come one, come all. There's enough grace at the cross for everyone. The gospel is the power of God to save everyone, including that person that you think, there's just no way. They're too hard. I've tried so many times. I've prayed so much. Other people have tried. The gospel is the power of salvation for that person if they would believe in him. Trust in that power. Be convicted of that power that resides in God to make a new life from someone who is dead in their trespasses and sins. Don't give up. Don't be discouraged when it comes to evangelism because no one, no one, no one, no one, no one is beyond the reach of God's love. So, this is the gospel. Uh, This is the message that is our greatest treasure and this treasure that we share. This is the message that we proclaim in evangelism, a message that satisfies our most desperate need, a message that requires the most costly sacrifice, and a message that surpasses the best human love, a love that God showed in giving us his son to die while we were yet sinners. And so, let's go out and tell 
sinners about this love. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we're uh, blown away and freshly amazed at the love that you have shown us that's described in this text. Uh, A greater love we have never known and will never know. And so at this time, we, we thank you and we praise you that you have in, in your sovereign plan decided to show us grace and to save us, not because of anything good in and of ourselves, but in spite of us, uh, despite all of our sin and despite even the sin that we commit post-conversion, uh, you've been so gracious. Your mercies are new every morning, and so uh, we praise you for that, and I've pray that we would continue to to worship you and give you all the glory you deserve because of the gospel. And Lord, we understand the gospel, but we don't understand it enough. We don't love it enough. We don't treasure it enough. So we ask that your Holy Spirit would impress this truth deeper into our hearts. Shake us awake if we've grown sleepy in our understanding of the gospel and our appreciation of the gospel. Fill our hearts with just how amazing your love is in Jesus Christ so that it overflows in telling others about your love. Uh, God, we want to be evangelists and we want evangelism to be our lifestyle and we know that only comes when we understand just what we've been saved from and just how great you are. Uh, So amaze us each and every day with the good news of the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.